You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. I want to welcome you to this part of our program. We're talking about the end from the beginning. And I, I, I want to tell you that right up front, I'm taking the long way around on this. I'm going through every uh, major episode in Scripture where there is a foreshadowing of something major that was fulfilled later on. Then we're going to get into some things that you possibly have never heard before. Some of these are going to be quite familiar to you, but I do feel like it's necessary to go through them. Because what we want to do here is clearly establish the pattern that God set and that He is always revealing things that are happening and are going to happen through things that happened before in symbolic form. So the Lord gave in the book of Leviticus chapter 7, and uh, or chapter 23 rather, He gave seven annual festivals for the children of Israel to observe. Now these seven festivals are recorded in detail, and uh, then later on we get more details added to each of them. Now the first one of these was a weekly festival or a weekly observance, the Sabbath. We've already talked about that. But now we jump into the things that happen just once a year. And so they're found in Leviticus chapter 23. They are called feasts or festivals, although it's, it's, it's hard to... Uh, uh, see Yom Kippur as a feast or a festival uh, because it wasn't a festive occasion. We'll get to that later on in our study. Uh, the, the word feast or festival then comes from the Hebrew moed, which is appointment or set time. Now, in that way, you could see that Yom Kippur definitely was an appointment or a set time, uh, a very somber observance. Uh, they're also called holy convocations. Uh, that's the Hebrew mikra, and it means rehearsal or recital. And so this gives us a clear picture of what these are for. They are rehearsals for another event that is coming down the road. Now, you have a like a wedding rehearsal. It's not the real wedding. Uh, but later, you do the wedding in the same way that you did the rehearsal. The rehearsals give us a picture of the real event, what God wanted to point us to. And they reveal the Messiah and His work in the earth. Everything about these is designed to reveal the Messiah. Um, he has fulfilled four of these annual feasts. The first four of them have already been completed. And we'll go into detail about how those were fulfilled. He is going to fulfill the last of the three. Now, Passover or Pesach foreshadows the suffering and the death of the Messiah. And it is given to us in this picture where they were to offer a lamb or a, even a kid goat uh, without blemish of the first year. They did that in the month of Nisan. And uh, when this feast was given, uh, God changed the order and gave Israel a double calendar. Now, up until that time, their new year began in the fall on the first day of Tishri. But then he says to them, I'm going to give you a new year beginning, and it is the month of Nisan, and it is the religious year. And so Israel has two different new years. There is the first of Nisan, which is the beginning of the spiritual calendar, and there is the month of Tishri, which is the beginning of the uh, civil calendar, the civil year, and that happens in the fall of the year. All right, Exodus chapter 4, the, you can't understand uh, the Passover without understanding the concept of the firstborn, because that's what it goes to. In 421 it says, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I've put in your hand. That means uh, throwing the snake down, uh, putting your hand to the chest and putting it back, and it becomes leprous and then it's healed. Uh, he said, Do all of those things. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God prepared Moses ahead of time. 
and told him, uh, this is, you're going to run up against opposition, but go ahead and do this anyway. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That's the crux of what God wanted to do was to deliver his firstborn. And that's what every plague culminated in. It culminated in this judgment on Egypt's firstborn because Pharaoh would not release God's firstborn, which is Israel. So I say to you, this is what he was to say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That's what Moses said to Pharaoh at the very beginning. So that was the first of the feasts. And, and uh, it, or, or the first of the uh, uh, purposes and the most important purpose. There are other purposes in all the plagues, and we'll get to that. But what I want you to see here is God wanted to deal with Pharaoh so he would release his firstborn. He considered Israel his firstborn son. That's what the selecting of Abraham's family was, to create a family for God to work in and to have covenant with so he could demonstrate his goodness uh, to the whole earth. And that's the whole purpose of the creation of Israel. It was to create a nation so that God could show himself to the world. And he knew they were going to have failures. He knew they were going to be messed up. He knew they would do wrong things. But God was merciful to them. Now, they did experience judgments, but God was merciful to them, and he blessed them. And at times, they were the most envied nation on earth. But he wanted to show, this is what happens when people follow me in obedience and keep my word. And that was the purpose of the nation of Israel. Now, the first of these ten plagues, uh, the first nine of them, were judgments upon the gods of Egypt. Egypt was a, a polytheistic society. They worshipped a number of gods. And every one of these plagues that Moses did, the turning of the water to blood, the frogs, the, the, the gnats, the, the uh, darkness that came, all of those things were designed to strike out at the different gods of Egypt. And they humiliated, or God humiliated these gods uh, before the Egyptians. They couldn't pray to anything that worked. And so God demonstrated his superiority over them. But when the Passover came, it was different. It was a direct challenge to Satan himself because Satan was really the one who was in power, who was influencing the Pharaoh, who was holding uh, the people of Israel in bondage. And so God dealt with them. So the purpose of these plagues was twofold, to humiliate the various different demon gods that Egypt worshipped, and then finally to deal with Satan himself. God gave Israel the rights of the Passover to shield them from the death angel who was going to come in and kill the firstborn in every family. And uh, this is interesting because God did not have to do this in the previous plagues. The previous plagues where the judgments were against those other gods, God did not have to necessarily shield Israel with the blood of a lamb. He shielded them, okay, but this one is going to require blood because this is a picture of Satan being dealt with. Every family had to kill a lamb uh, or a kid goat. They had to be without blemish. Um, they were to be taken from the flock on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. And uh, they would be kept for four days so that if the lamb was sickly or the little kid goat was sickly, it would show up in those days. They were not to offer anything that was imperfect to the Lord. It couldn't have any scars. It, it couldn't be crippled in any way, couldn't be diseased. It had to be a very healthy lamb or a very healthy kid goat. So it was taken for the purposes of examination on the 10th day of Nisan. It was to be slain between the evenings, which is the afternoon before sundown, on the 14th. And it's to be eaten that evening after sundown, which technically would be the changing of a day. It would be the 15th. And its blood was brushed on the posts, the uprights, on either side of the door, and upon the lintel, on the cross member. And so this is a picture of the cross. 
Uh, the lamb had to be roasted, not boiled. None of its bones could be broken. That was a very strict commandment. Don't break any of the bones. And uh, it had to be completely consumed. It was to be eaten along with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, the bitterness uh, representing what the Messiah would go through. The lamb's blood had to be applied to the doors. It was not enough that the children of Israel were Abraham's seed. They still had to be redeemed by the blood. So in other words, uh, just because they were chosen, they were God's chosen, and they belonged to the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they still had to be protected by the blood. And so this is a picture of the shed blood of Christ, how that it's necessary for all men, uh, all men, not just for the children of Israel, but for all of us. We all have to have that blood for us. So Christ fulfilled Passover in his death on the cross. This is an interesting thing. I found this in my book, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Eidersheim. And he writes that sometime before Jesus was born, uh, the rabbis issued an edict that sheep had to be moved away from the city of Jerusalem. They couldn't be kept uh, near the city because of the smell that began to pour into Jerusalem from all of these different animals being kept nearby. There was only one place where sheep could be kept in close proximity to Jerusalem, and that was at Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, the sheep were raised for Passover lambs. And so now you see the significance of the angels of God appearing to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born, to reveal his birth, and they were called to come witness. <coughs> Pardon me. They were called to come witness his birth. And so in this way, Jesus is fulfilling the Passover uh, by being born here in Bethlehem and being witnessed by the shepherds who raised the Passover lambs. Now Christ came into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, on the same day, that the Passover lamb was to be taken and examined. And Jesus, for the next four days, goes through a very stressful examination process. He gets hit with tests of every kind. And uh, I want to read to you the first one here. It's Matthew 21, 23. They came to Jesus asking him, by what authority do you do these things? You know, he had just thrown down the tables of the money changers. And they wanted to know, by, by what authority do you do these things? And they're challenging him. Now, I believe that Jesus answered the critics with the word of wisdom. I think that the wisdom that came out of his mouth during this was given to him that moment by the Holy Spirit. And I think Jesus was so perfectly attuned to the Holy Spirit that he was able to whip out these answers immediately because he flowed with the Holy Spirit like this his, uh, his whole ministry period. Uh, remember that Jesus limited himself, Philippians 2. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. That's what the Greek says. He uh, went through a kenosis, so to speak. If Jesus had to be taught and if he had to learn, and it describes his teaching and how that he grew in learning and in wisdom, Luke 2.52. Uh, if, if that is the case, then Jesus did not come to the earth with all of his messianic knowledge. He had to learn that, but because he was the Son of God and because he had anointing and insight from the Holy Spirit, he was able to acquire a perfect knowledge of the scriptures and of everything that he was supposed to do. And so Jesus was able to immediately answer these questions by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he said, uh, why don't you tell me uh, about the baptism of John? Did it come from men or did it come from God? Well, they weren't going to answer that. So he had them right there. They couldn't go on with that testing. Uh, the next question, they come to him. They say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And he immediately had an answer for that one. 
He came to them, uh, asked for a coin, said, show me the coin. Whose image is this, he said. And they showed him it was Caesar's image. He said, render unto Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, the things of God to, uh, to, to God, things that belong to God to God. So we see that he passed this test with flying colors. Uh, test number three, uh, they asked him about uh, a woman uh, who had seven husbands and whose wife she would be in the resurrection. He handled that question. And finally, the last question was Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, And they asked, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And uh, he said, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When he did that one, uh, it says in Matthew twenty-two forty-six, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. So he was taken on the 10th day of Nisan, examined for four days, just like the Passover lamb, and he passed every test. They could find no fault in him. Now this is significant. Because the Passover lamb had to be totally innocent, totally guiltless. On seven different occasions, the guiltlessness or the innocence of Christ was verbalized by people who were there. Four times, Pilate himself says, he is an innocent man. One time, Pilate's wife said, he is an innocent man. One time the thief on the cross says he is an innocent man. And after his death, the centurion said, certainly this was a righteous man. Now he also said, certainly this was the son of God, but he said also he was a righteous man, which means that he's declaring the innocence of Christ. So we've got this witness, seven witnesses describing his innocence. He died at three o'clock in the afternoon by giving up the ghost. He, in other words, he could have continued to live. He said, nobody takes my life, I lay it down. So he, as an act of will, surrendered his life when he could have kept living. Uh, they marveled that he was dead so soon, so they came to break his legs the way they would have with any other crucifixion. And they did break the legs of the thieves. They didn't break his legs because he was already dead. And so uh, his blood, was upon the upright part of the cross, the post, and also on the horizontal member. So vertically and horizontally, his blood stained that cross. Uh, he yielded to death without putting up any fight. He never protested. He could have protested. He could have argued, but he didn't. In the way that a lamb would die, without fighting back, Jesus did not fight back. He gave up his life. And so he is a perfect example of the Passover lamb. And so this is the first of the annual feasts that God gave to Israel in Leviticus 23. And of course in Exodus, we read about some of it. And we see that Jesus fulfilled it to perfection. Along with this first feast was another feast to be observed for seven days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Jews were to take all the yeast out of their household. They would go on a sweep to get rid of it all so that there's no possibility of any leaven being in any of their bread. They wouldn't have it in any of the things that they cooked with or baked with. All the leaven was taken out, and they would take this flat bread then. It wouldn't rise. And on one side, they would strafe it and put stripes on it. On the other side, they would flip it over and poke holes in it. So it was both striped and pierced. And so that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was taken that evening on the 15th of Nisan, which is after sundown. They would have that meal. And uh, this matzah was uh, unleavened. So it is a picture of Christ dying sinlessly. And he is both striped and pierced. And they would take that uh, feast and observe it for seven days. Now, uh, these piercings and these stripes were pictures of the wounds he experienced by crucifixion and also by his scourging. And so uh, the symbolism here is just incredible. Then it was customary later on, in the Jewish culture, they would take a piece of this matzah bread, tear off a fragment, wrap it in a linen napkin. The father of the household, where Passover was reserved, would take it and hide it, and then the children would go looking for it, and the one who found it 
would receive a prize that was called the promise of the Father. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard of me. And he said, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So uh, the promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled perfectly both of these two feasts, both unleavened bread and Passover. And I put them together because they were observed together. And you see that God foreshadowed the coming of Messiah and he ordered all of these little details. And uh, for instance, don't break any of his bones. And it would have normally happened that his bones would have been broken, but God didn't let it happen because Jesus gave up the ghost early enough for them not to have to break his legs. So he fulfilled every little detail. He died at exactly the right time on exactly the right day. He came to Jerusalem on exactly the right day. He was tested and examined uh, the way that he was supposed to be tested and examined. They couldn't find any fault in him. They finally just gave it all up because they found him sinless in seven different times. He was declared to be totally innocent and guiltless. So these festivals are amazing shadows of the real work of Christ on the cross. These are the first ones. Uh, we'll get into uh, the next one in our next segment. Welcome back. We're going to get into the second part of this, which would be the third feast, the third annual feast given to Israel in Leviticus 23. And it is the Feast of Firstfruits. This couldn't be observed until after the children of Israel came into the land of Canaan. They had to take possession of the land of Canaan. Listen to what it says in uh, Leviticus 23.9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so that is the feast of first fruits. It was observed on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. The Sabbath uh, uh, would be in between when the Passover happened. That's the weekly Sabbath. And then the day following would be uh, the morning of the first day of the week, which was Sunday, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, the bread that was offered here was also unleavened, just like uh, the, the bread of uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the reason is because the festival here, or the feast, is a picture of Christ. And since He's the one who bore our sin, carried our sin, anything that represent him, represents Him has to be unleavened. And so the bread was unleavened, had no leaven or yeast in it at all, because uh, it is a symbol of His bodily resurrection. Uh, the sheaf was waved, and so uh, it, this is different. Uh, it would be taken and waved, and it would be like this, in four different directions. Now, there were heave offerings that went up like this. So when it, the Bible talks about a heave offering, that means it was lifted. But if it was a wave offering, it was taken into the four different directions. So symbolically, they would wave it to the north, the east, the south, and the west. And um, that's appropriate for this because the, the, the gift of Christ and the resurrection of Christ belonged to the whole world. And God wanted us to preach the gospel uh, to the whole world in every direction. Uh, so that's what First Fruits is about. It's about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So his resurrection is tied to the Feast of First Fruits, First Corinthians, Corinthians 15 20. You'll see a lot about First Fruits and how Christ fulfilled that. Now, uh, here's what that means. In, in, in other words, 
when it is said that Christ was the first fruits, it means that he set a pattern for others to follow, that we will experience the same thing that he experienced. The Bible says, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we are going to also have a resurrection the way that he had a resurrection, receive a body like his glorified body. In fact, that's the whole theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's about the resurrection of the physical body. Uh, the resurrection paralyzed Satan because what it did is it defeated Satan's greatest weapon and greatest effect. The greatest tool in Satan's tool belt was death. It's what he brought with him when Adam sinned. Uh, so Satan is the original murderer. And so death came in the Garden of Eden because Adam yielded to the Lord of death, which was Satan. It's only natural then that he would eventually die because he yielded to the Lord of death. That's what Satan brings, is death, wherever he goes. And so he is the author of death, the agent of death. Jesus said he comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. And so uh, death was dealt a death blow by the resurrection of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that everybody was raised from the dead. It meant that Christ was, and there were a few others. Uh, Matthew 27, 52 talks about others that were raised from the dead with uh, Jesus in his resurrection. And by the way, these were not raised like Lazarus where they would go back into the city and live out their lives and eventually die. These people were permanently raised, given glorified bodies uh, as a little sampling, a little free sampling of what was coming later. Now, this is pictured for us in the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a great picture of the resurrection. The Passover is the cross, and it's where the great work was done. This is what uh, released the children of Israel. It's what caused Pharaoh to say, you may go. But they're still not out of the woods. They're not out of the woods because Pharaoh is still alive. His army is still intact. He is still a threat. He's still dangerous. So he chases the children of Israel to the shores of the Red Sea. And, and the children of Israel uh, are led by God, not by Moses. Uh, Moses is only following the pillar of fire that that goes in the sky above them at night and the cloud that covers them in the daytime. So he has to follow where God leads. God purposely led them to a dead end. And I got to tell you that it's not uncommon for you to have, I wouldn't say it happens all the time, but you will have a few dead end experiences in your life where God will lead you. There will be no way out of the situation that you see yourself in. It may look very, very bleak, but the that point in time, God steps in when no one else can help, and God delivers you, and everybody knows it, and you know it's God, and that's what he did at the Red Sea. He let Israel know, I have you. They came up out of the Red Sea and saw when it closed on Pharaoh what an amazing thing God had done, and so God completed the process of redemption here with the resurrection. The resurrection is what gives the cross its power. Lots of people People were crucified. Now, crucifixion was a common thing when Jesus was crucified. What makes it all different is that he was raised from the dead. And so that's what we see in the Feast of First Fruits. Um, the Feast of First Fruits is an offering to Elohim. And uh, your English Bible won't show this, uh, but it is Elohim when it says you bring this offering to God. Elohim is different than Jehovah. Jehovah or Yahweh is a name for God, the covenant God, which implies relationship. But then Elohim is a word that describes God, the creator. It's, it's, it really is a picture of Jesus. And uh, E.W. Bollinger writes this. He said, Elohim occurs 2,700 times in Scripture. Its first occurrence connects it with creation and gives it its essential meaning as the creator. So even though Elohim doesn't literally mean creator, because it is connected, it is the name God uses of himself in all of creation, then from then on, it connects him to creating and being creator. Uh, that means Elohim is God the Son, the living word with creature form 
to create, meaning that he had a body like our body. We could see him. Then God has a form that no man has ever seen. Uh, but that's not the case with the Son. Now listen to John 1, 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is Jesus. And so here he is as creator. So the bodily resurrection of Christ restored all mankind, not just Israel, but all mankind, to its original created state, which is total freedom from death. Now that hasn't been carried out yet, but the payment has been made, the legal precedent has been set, the test case has been won. And so this is very much like what happens when there's a Supreme Court ruling. There may be other judges in different jurisdictions who uh, are going to defy a Supreme Court ruling, but eventually that case will make it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will rule and set all the other cases straight. Now, that is the third of the feast days. It is the Feast of first fruits, and it was fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ and uh, it is an amazing representation of what he did. The next feast comes 50 days later, and it is found in Leviticus chapter 23. I'm going to read uh, verse 15, starting at verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So you'd have the 49 days and you include the last day of the Sabbath, so it makes it 50. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Now, that's why it's called Pentecost, Penta meaning 50. It means literally 50th day. In uh, uh, Hebrew, it is the Feast of Weeks. Uh, it's Shavuot. And uh, so it is uh, a different name. But it is the day that God gave the law to the children of Israel from Mount Sinai. Now, they observed it by waving two loaves of leavened bread. Now, all the bread up until this time has been unleavened. Uh, which is without yeast. So that's a picture of Christ. But Pentecost is picturing something else. When two waves of leavened bread or two uh, loaves of leavened bread are waved here in the wheat harvest, uh, uh, the first fruits is uh, the barley harvest because it comes uh, ripe earlier. And then you've got Pentecost, the wheat harvest, and so these two loaves are waved before the Lord with leaven in them because they don't picture the Messiah. They are pictures of the two different groups of people that God calls to himself, which are both Jews and Gentiles. That means he made room to reach both Jews and Gentiles in his covenant. So this represents the fullness of the harvest. Now, the people who were gathered in the camp at the base of Mount Sinai heard thundering. And uh, there is a tradition which says that it was the voice of God, and they actually heard this, uh, giving the law, the Ten Commandments, to the whole world at the same time. That, uh, and the idea is that God's voice went out to the whole earth, and everybody on planet earth heard uh, the Ten Commandments at the same time. Uh, Romans 2 says that the law of God, those Ten Commandments, are written in the hearts of people, that we instinctively know it's wrong to steal. We know it's wrong to uh, to commit murder. We, we, we instinctively have those things in us. And so that's the idea here behind uh, uh, the thunderings. Uh, when Moses came off the top of the mountain, there were 3,000 people killed for worshiping that golden calf. And they were executed at the base of the mountain for their, both their idolatry and their lewdness. They're parading around naked. So it was uh, uh, against the laws of God on more than one level. And on the day of Pentecost, 
we have a totally different occurrence. We have 3,000 people saved and given a new spirit. So it shows the contrast between the giving of the law, which was to really be set up as an instrument of death to show people you're guilty and you deserve to die because you broke God's laws. And then in the law of grace, we see people given life uh, even when they didn't deserve it because of God's grace to give life. The whole purpose of the cross was to give life. And that's the Feast of Pentecost. Um, so, We've got the first of these four feasts in Leviticus 23. Let's talk about it. Pesach, Passover. Jesus fulfilled it exactly in every detail. He fulfilled unleavened bread. His body is pictured. That's why when he takes the matzah bread and tears it, uh, when he's giving communion to his disciples, he says, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. It was striped on one side, pierced on the other. Uh, they may not have fully understood what he was saying to them, but they couldn't but have noticed, they couldn't help but notice uh, as he died that he would have a body like the bread that they saw. It would be pierced on one side and, and striped on the other. Uh, then we see the first fruits where he was raised from the dead. They could have followed and known something amazing was going to happen every one of these feasts. The first of these four were fulfilled to the day. Then you come into a long period of summer, no festivals. God did not call any of the Jewish males to Jerusalem over the hot summer months. It's time for the harvest. They're out working in the fields. It's too hot to move and travel in that climate. It's going to be fall before they are called back to Jerusalem. So you have this long gap, and it's a picture of the two periods of fulfillment for these festivals, these feasts of Leviticus that were given to be observed on an annual basis. The first four have already been fulfilled. Then there's a long gap. We're living in that gap. Then we come to the last of the three. In our next session, we'll cover those three last appointments, rehearsals, and we'll show you how Christ is going to fulfill those in the future, not too distant future. Welcome back. It's time to get into those last three of the annual festivals. Leviticus chapter 23 is where we're reading. And verse 23 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. And remember what a convocation is. It is a rehearsal, a recital. In other words, it's a dress rehearsal for something that's going to be done later on. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, the date of this feast on the first day of the seventh month, which is the, the day of the first of Tishri, is known in Judaism as Rosh Hashanah. Rosh meaning head, Hashanah meaning of the year. And so uh, it is a festival that is often called Rosh Hashanah, but Rosh Hashanah is the day. The feast is the Feast of Trumpets. Now, it is called the birthday of the world because Jewish tradition holds that the world was created on the first day of Tishri. And so every year they begin the year with this day because it is, it is in their minds, the birthday of the world. And I have no reason to doubt that. Uh, it is connected to the blowing of trumpets, and it is also called the Feast of Trumpets. Now, it's the only one of the festivals that no man knows the exact beginning. And let me tell you why. They were to do it not based upon a calendar, but based upon the appearance of the new moon. Now, for those of you who don't pay a lot of attention to the moon, you know what a full moon is. Well, the new moon is just the opposite of that. 
And so you, you've got the first quarter moon, the third quarter moon. If you're a hunter, you know about the importance of those. The third quarter moon is the best moon to hunt. Uh, animal movement's better during the third quarter moon than the first quarter moon. And then the new moon is the daytime moon. But when it ends its cycle, it starts coming into a new moon, which means that it's going to start showing up at night now. So it's appearing in the twilight in the evening, and there will be a tiny little sliver of the moon way out on the western horizon and it's in the sun and so it's very difficult to see and so what you see is this crescent moon and those are called the horns of the moon and uh, it took two righteous men two witnesses to see that, agree upon that, come in and tell the leaders, yes, we have seen the horns of the moon, but if it was cloudy or if it was difficult to see, they could not just come in and say, well, the day's here, the calendar says it's today. Uh, it wasn't observed that way. They had to see the horns of the moon. So they observed the festival for two days because the next day it was evil, easier to see the horns of the moon. So that's why the nickname of this festival is called the Day That No Man Knows. It's the only one of the seven that is begun when the... Uh, uh, new moon appears. None of the others are in coincidence with the new moon. All right. Now, in the New Testament, we see something about this, uh, and it's in the book of Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew 24, let me just go back over it for you, is an answer, a lengthy answer to three questions that Jesus' disciples ask him. They said, what will be the sign that these things are going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? What will be the sign of the end of the age? What is the sign of your coming? Those are three totally different uh, uh, questions that they posed to him. Well, the temple was destroyed 40 years later. So he gave them some things to look for. Uh, that, 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 and, and they were fulfilled. And those signs came. Then he talks to them as Jews, about what will happen in the last days. And he says, uh, for instance, that uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now he's not talking to believers. He's not talking to, to Christians. He's not talking even to Jewish believers. He's talking to people who will be present in Jerusalem or in Israel at the middle of the tribulation and in a seven-year period. He is speaking to different groups of people here about different things that happen. Then he goes on and describes all of these terrible, dreadful things that will happen in this period called tribulation, and he says it will all end when he comes back. And uh, it's uh, Matthew twenty four thirty. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So his second coming is for the whole world to see. But then he comes down to verse 32 and talks about something totally different. Now pay attention. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Jesus taught in parables, but he didn't expect anyone to learn the parable unless they were in relationship to him. He never explained the meaning of the parables to the crowds. He explained the meanings of the parables to his followers. Now he's talking to people who are in relationship with him, not just to everybody. He said, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer or harvest is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
Now, this is not talking about the second coming. The second coming happens on the very last day, day number 2520 of a seven-year period of 360-day-long years. That's when Christ returns and everybody knows the day because he tells us the day. But the day for his coming for the church is completely unknown, and that's why Jesus uses the Feast of Trumpets as a symbol for his return back to the church. No man knows the day and the hour. He said, you will know the season of this when you watch the fig tree. The fig tree is a symbol of national Israel. Now, Israel is symbolized by three trees. It's symbolized by the olive tree, the vine, and the fig tree. But the fig tree is the symbol of Israel as a nation. It's national Israel. So he is saying, when you see national Israel restored. And that happened for us in 1948. When you see that happen, know this, a generation will not pass until all of this has been fulfilled. What is the terminal event of fulfillment? The rapture or the catching away of the church. It has to happen in a generation. Now, what's a generation? 20 years, 40 years? A generation is the average lifespan of a group of people alive at the time of the restoration of Israel. And for us, friends, that's right at 80 years. That means then we are very close to the fulfillment of this prophecy. So we have two different things here. You know, in one place, Jesus says, uh, if you're on top of the house and you see this abomination, abomination of desolation, don't go back down into the house. That can't be talking to anyone in the church because you won't have time to go back down in the house to grab anything. The Bible says his coming is in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So we won't have time to go down into the house for anything. We will immediately be caught up to be with the Lord. He's talking there to Jews about his second coming. But he is talking to us in a different way in the rapture, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And it is uh, important to note that we will hear that trumpet. Now, now let me read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, this is beginning in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, who's he talking to? He's talking to people who have trusted in Christ for their salvation, who believe that Jesus died and rose again. He is not talking to everybody. Let me explain something to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Paul writes and says, Give no offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Three groups of people. Jews, Gentiles, Church of God. When you read Bible prophecy, you have to ask yourself the question, is this talking to Jews? Is this talking to Gentiles? Or is this talking to the Church of God? Now, why is the Church of God mentioned last? Because you are in the Church of God if you believe in Christ, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. So these are the three distinct groups of people that God deals with on planet Earth. And so when there are prophecies given, we have to ask, who is it speaking to? You know, if I called one of my kids to come help me and I was going to do some, maybe some work on the roof of my house, I'm not calling my daughters to do that. I'm calling my sons. And so it's important for them to know, who am I calling for? That's what God is doing all through Scripture in different prophecies. He's talking to particular groups of people. And where confusion arises is people take prophecies that were meant for Israel and they apply them to the church. Now, God has a program for Israel. He hadn't done with them. But what he says to the church is different than what he says to Israel. All right, let's continue. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now there are numbers of trumpets, lots of trumpets will be blown in the end times. This is the trumpet of God that calls us. You won't have to ask yourself, I wonder if that's my trumpet. You will know by the changes that happen in your body at that moment. There will be a complete transformation that will overtake you. Let me read it to you. 
here's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So he says it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So which trumpet yours? The one that changes your body. When you hear a trumpet and you begin to tingle, you won't have to be told this is your trumpet. You will know it. Now, the date of this feast is not known for sure. It's called the day that no man knows. So the rapture could happen at any moment. And we believe in this doctrine that there is no prophecy. The temple doesn't have to be rebuilt. Russia doesn't have to invade Israel. The, the, the Antichrist doesn't come. Nothing has to be fulfilled yet in order for Jesus to return for his church. All we know is it will be within a generation from the time the fig tree was rebirthed in 1948. It'll happen within a generation. Now, that's the Feast of Trumpets. All right. Now, <clears throat> the next feast is Yom Kippur. And on the 10th day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. Uh, day is Yom Kippur. It, it has to do with atonement. It's the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 23, 27. It's the most somber day of the year for Jews. Uh, very somber. There is no work. The whole country shuts down. It's a fascinating thing. I've never been in Israel on the Day of Atonement. I have heard uh, about uh, the amazing things like the streets are empty. I, we maybe got a little picture of it when COVID hit and there were total lockdowns around America. Uh, but that will really, really happen on the Day of Atonement. And, and it does happen every year. Uh, it is when Christ returns to rescue Israel. And uh, he comes back. Uh, we read about this. It's called the Day of the Lord. And it happens uh, uh, at the, after the rapture of the church. And it happens uh, very near to the time of the rapture of the church, but after it. Now listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need that I should write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord... So comes as a thief in the night. Now, it's a thief in the night because it affects a lot of people who didn't think it was coming. Now, that's not us. We, we are looking for the coming of the Lord. Uh, but there are a lot of people in the world that are not looking for him. So when he does come, it's going to catch them off guard. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that, that th this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Now, he goes on to say, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we have is a seven-year period. It's called tribulation. That's the first half. The second half, three and a half years, is called the great tribulation, meaning it's way worse than the first half. And we have not been appointed to that period. That is a time of great wrath. Now, it doesn't mean that God won't move. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that during this time that there will be 144,000 young Jewish men preaching like nobody's business. They will reap a harvest of souls that will total up a multitude of 10,000 times 10,000s who will stand before God at the middle of this tribulation. They'll be caught up. I'm convinced that a lot of the harvest that many prayer warriors are seeing in their spirits when they pray right now will be fulfilled in this middle tribulation harvest. It's going to be incredible. That's not to say we won't see a harvest of our own before the rapture of the church, but in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, God is going to be moving amazingly. God's not going to let the devil have all the glory. This is not going to be Satan's big triumph. It is Satan's great embarrassment. And so during that first three and a half years, it's going to be incredible how many people come to faith in Christ. There will also be two witnesses preaching during that season, and they will be uncovered 
unkillable. Uh, Satan will try to kill them. Antichrist will try to kill them. Can't do it until the very last week of their time on earth. And even then, they are raised from the dead and they go up slowly before the cameras and the whole world sees their resurrection. So it's a frustrating time to be a devil and to be the Antichrist. You see then, during this season, God is putting the pressure on. And He wants all of the people of the world to make their minds up. What is your decision? Are you going to choose me? You're going to reject me. And what's going to happen? There are going to be a lot of people, hard cases, that are going to melt and come to faith in God. There will be others who will become even harder, turn more against God. And so people will have made their decisions. So by the end of that seven years, everybody will have picked his team. And that's what the purpose is. God wants everybody to pick their team. Whose side are you on? And it's very much like Joshua saying to the men of Israel, uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's what's going on. They're choosing who they're going to serve. That is Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur is the only day of the year the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies. He had to go through an elaborate ritual, offering sacrifices for his own cleansing. He had to reach a state of ceremonial purity, and after that, nobody could touch him. And he would take the blood of a sacrificial animal into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it there on the seat before the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and 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 he would... Uh, make atonement for Israel as a nation. Now, throughout the year, individual Israelis would come and they would offer sacrifices for themselves, for their own personal sins and so forth. But this was the saving of the nation. That's why it was such a big deal. And so the whole nation was forgiven of its sins and, and the covenant was reinforced for a whole year, for another 365 days. That's what Yom Kippur was all about. And so that will, will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ in the future. It has yet to come. Just like the Feast of Trumpets has not been fulfilled yet, it will be fulfilled when Christ comes for His church. Yom Kippur will be fulfilled when Christ comes at the end of the tribulation and delivers Israel. And that's when he appears and deals with all the armies who've gathered in Armageddon. And uh, he, he will do battle against them. We will be with him. And uh, then he will establish a 1,000-year rule and reign on planet Earth, which brings us to the last of these seven feasts. And this last one is a, a, a seven-plus-one-day uh, observance called Feast of Tabernacles. And it's held in uh, uh, the month of Tishri as well, later on in the month. And the idea is that Israel is dwelling in rest and security, and people from all over the world are coming to visit Israel, and it's a picture of the 1,000-year reign of Christ on planet Earth. Uh, that's what the seventh festival is. So three of these have not been fulfilled. Four of them have in between there's a long period of summertime harvest, and we're waiting for the next of those festivals to be completed. If he kept the first four, he will keep the last three. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the rapture has to take place on exactly uh, Rosh Hashanah because no man knows the day or the hour. It is a, a complete mystery to us. Uh, it might be that it happens then. If it does, praise God. I, I just want to see it happen in my lifetime. I'm hoping that it does. You know what, though? i got to tell you, I'm going to be a part of it, whether it's in my lifetime or not, because uh, if, if it comes after I go home to be with the Lord, I will be ahead of everybody living on planet Earth because the first group of people to be affected by it are those who are dead in Christ. Now... This amazing thing is that the earth is returned to paradise. And you read about this millennial reign when the earth becomes like a paradise again. Isaiah 11, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Isaiah 60, the whole chapter is about this millennial reign of Christ, which the, the Feast of Tabernacles is representative of. Zechariah 14 
16 through 21 is another description of it. So we see all through the scriptures and there are other places as well where Christ rules and reigns in great peace on the earth. We're going to see this earth run the way it should be run. So that's this lesson. And it shows us he declares the end from the beginning with symbolic festivals. And he wanted us to be able to see his entire comprehensive program with seven, seven being the number of completeness, meaning there ain't no more. So on an annual basis, uh, there were seven of these feasts. And the idea is this is the whole of the program of God, the fulfilling of these feasts. The seven is fatness, fullness, and and it means completion. And so this is an amazing thing that he has given us to show us his plan in advance. We can learn so much from it. I invite you to go back over this and to write down the scripture references and study these. Read them for yourselves. Read especially what I gave you out of Matthew 24, where you see the two distinctly different comings, the second coming versus the rapture of the church and how totally different they are. Uh, That is so critically important. This can be easy to understand if you apply yourself. Uh, Listen to me. Don't buy into the lie. I can't understand this. It's too deep for me. When you say things like that, you only make it worse. Say this, I have the mind of Christ. I can understand these things. Father, reveal these things to me by your Holy Spirit. Help me to understand your word. Until next time, start reading your Bible. See you then. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below are going to MyFaithRoots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Mm -hmm.